Hey everybody, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And this is Bound by the Cloak. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking about Schenectady, a city in upstate New York, just 15 miles away from the state capital, Albany. Schenectady is a small city with big secrets. Some shit has gone down in Schenectady, New York over the years. Most people know nothing about the city of Schenectady, which is pretty close to Albany. And for a small city in New York State, they've had a lot of issues. Most of these issues involve police corruption and scandal that have to do with politics, ethical issues, drugs, sex work, and even the suicide of a police officer. The police department has even been the focus of a federal investigation. You may have heard of the 2012 film, The Place Beyond the Pines, starring Ryan Gosling, Bradley Cooper, and Ava Mendez. That film was loosely based on the city of Schenectady. We spoke to journalist and author David Bushman. He's the author of Forget It, Jake, It's Schenectady, the true story behind the place beyond the pines. David was traveling through upstate New York to do research for an entirely different story when he met Greg Kazmarak. He had no idea that his Lyft driver would turn out to be a former police chief of the city of Schenectady that had found himself embroiled in a scandal and federal investigation. In 1999 and 2000, Schenectady faced a police scandal that led to four officers receiving jail time, one officer committing suicide, and Kazmarak's resignation. Today on Bound by the Cloak, we're joined by David Bushman. David, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I live in Manhattan. Right now, a writer, editor, and... uh, Professor, adjunct instructor at several schools and colleges. Uh, I um, spent 27 years as a curator at the Paley Center for Media, which used to be the Museum of Television and Radio. My educational background is in uh, English and journalism. I, I went to grad school in journalism and worked as a journalist, first in the trade, first in consumer press for Gannett, and then I um, kind of transitioned into um, trade press and wound up at Variety, which first in New York and then LA, covering television or editing writers who were covering the television industry. And that sort of led to the job at the museum. And that sort of led to uh, my sort of entry into the book world. And so you are the author of Forget It, Jake, It's Schenectady. Yeah, so that's the last book I did. That's, so I've done now two true crime books and three uh, pop culture books. The Schenectady book is about um, police corruption case that uh, sort of erupted in 1999 to 2000. And led to an FBI investigation and four cops went to jail um, and one took his life because he didn't want to testify against his colleagues. And then the chief then at that time, who was sort of my entry into the story, he um, was forced to resign at the time under pressure, although he refused to acknowledge that it was under pressure. And then um, he demonstrated a very acute case of lack of self-awareness. And then eventually he got arrested for cocaine possession and um, and did some time in jail. And when I when I first met him, he was a Lyft driver, which is how I met him. 
That's kind of crazy <laughs> that he turns up as a Lyft driver when you met him, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just chance. And then I found out that the guy was mayor during his time was also driving a car at that point. But, you know, like he said to me, it's really hard for a uh, 60-year-old, 60-plus-year-old convicted felon to get a job. So he was driving a Lyft car. He was my Lyft driver, and, and he just was in a chatty mood that day and started telling me all of this. And and so I um, said, we should really do a book about this because I was, I was, I was up there. Uh, he was driving me from um, in Albany from the train station to the airport where I was going to rent a car. And during that 20 minute ride, he just told me everything. And um, he said, you know, you can Google me, which I did eventually. But he was, again, the, the reason that I got turned on to the story. And he was more than he I think he expected a different book, more of a biography and more of a something that was um more flattering to him but he did he did eventually pass away before the book became published and he did but he did see a version of it and you know he there were parts of it he said that you know he wished weren't in there but that uh, I think again I think it was more like he was just flattered that he was the subject of a book so it could have been anything about him and I think he would have it's kind of like this just was like this thing about him where he just was able to deny certain truths or realities and focus on other things that that other other people saw it's like that it's like Rashomon I guess you know he he saw everything involving himself one way and most people seem to see it another way which I learned early on that all these stories that he was telling me about things that happened didn't really happen the way he saw them and that was something that required me to go to other sources to um, to verify, which totally changed the direction of the book and made it, I think, much more interesting and much more and much grayer. In his eyes, all, everything that he did had a reason. And in other people's eyes, the only reason everything that he did, the only reason that there was, was to promote himself. It was kind of an interesting uh look at things, how things are perceived by certain people and people's ability to, to, to um, maybe trick themselves or fool themselves or convince themselves to believe something that uh, is questionable. I wish I had that skill, actually, because, you know, <laughs> yeah. probably comes in handy every now and then. And so that police chief was uh, Greg Kasmarak. Kasmarak, right. Like I said, he has a very, uh, he's very well known up in that area because he's yeah case where he got arrested and uh, as part of a drug ring, which he really wasn't part of in a real literal sense. In the fall of 2008, Greg Kazmarak and his wife were indicted on felony drug distribution charges. It was alleged that they had used coded messages with drug dealers in a narcotics distribution organization that supplied drugs from Long Island to the Capital District. The drug ring was headed by Kerry Kirkham, who the Kazmareks were in frequent contact with. Greg had advised Kirkham on his drug dealing operations and had pleaded guilty to being in possession of cocaine with the intent to sell in early February of 2008. Kazmarak was sentenced to two years in state prison. His wife, Lisa, served only six months. They were sentenced in early 2009. I'll tell you, they were uh, getting drugs from somebody who was a f- friend of his, or really a friend more of, I guess, of his, the son of his wife. 
was a reputed drug, it was a known drug dealer and he was on a wiretap. And he was running a drug ring from Long Island to the capital region. And Greg had first, according to Greg, Greg had first gotten drugs from him when he was uh, in pain from cancer. And he was smoking weed before it was legal to do so, but after he was a policeman, which we'll accept is true for now. But uh, so then when they just, when they went to a Christmas party one year, uh, somebody approached them and said, do you want to try some cocaine? And they foolishly said yes. And that led to uh, them, you know, wanting more. And then who are they going to get it from? They were going to get it from the same guy whose name was Slim. They called him Slim because he was so skinny, but his name was Kerry Kirkham. And they knew him. And so they, they got it from him. And, and unbeknownst to them, he was on a wiretap. I think what they even acknowledged was that Greg's wife, Lisa, they, they got charged as being part of this distribution ring. And as far as I could tell, the extent of that was that, you know, like Lisa was, um, this is what they claimed anyway, was that Lisa, if she would go, she was working at a restaurant. If she went into the restaurant, they all knew that she had connections with um, Carrie Slim. So they would say to her, do you have anything? And she would sell like within that our circle of familiar people. And so she was technically selling. But I think the uh, some of the stories that covered it at the time sort of left the impression that he was a bigger part of the ring than, than, they, than he actually was. What brought you to Schenectady? And also, how much did you know about the city before getting into that lift? So it was the, really the lift ride that brought this to my attention. And I knew, I knew nothing, nothing literally about Schenectady. Um, but I found out a lot about Schenectady since. Apparently, Schenectady was, I don't know if it was the uh, Silicon Valley of its time, but it was very well known as the uh, home of GE, which was a you know a pioneer in electronics, and um, that was a company that was formed by Thomas Edison, and and they had like fifty thousand employees in the city, and that's where a lot of people who were interested in uh, pioneering electronics would go to work. Um, and the other big place that they had was Alco, which was a um, locomotive company, and and Alco got killed first because steam locomotives. Uh, went out of operation and they were not prepared for that. And then GE moved a huge part of their operation down south because, as it was explained to me, when you had the um, when the roads were built by during the Roosevelt years, and then you had air conditioning developed by Courier, I guess was one of the big names in that. And um, we'll now hear about Courier air conditioners. And the unions were slow to uh, slow to organize in the south. And and so what happened was GE uh, encountered these huge union problems where the unions were demanding all these concessions and all this money and GE didn't want to pay it. So they moved a huge up, huge part of their operation down south. And what happened was Schenectady's tax base just was decimated and they didn't have money they needed to uh, support police and schools and so on. And on top of that, you had suddenly all these uh, you know, white collar workers moving um, and they, their houses weren't selling. So you had all these abandoned houses. And you had a lot of the people who stayed were people who were not, didn't have the skills to um, easily find jobs. So you had a total change in the, in the population and the tax base at the same time that the crack academic was sort of ravaging cities a- across America. I know. And so that became, so drugs became a big problem. And it's like one cop said to me, when you have drugs, you will soon, you know, violent crime will soon follow. So there was all that stuff going on. And, and, 
by the time my story kicks in, which is 1999, you have a uh, huge drug trade there. Uh, I mentioned the Kirkham's operation, but you also had a whole section of town that was sort of dominated by this drug traffic and also by sex workers uh, who were, you know, people who were left behind by the migration who didn't really have marketable skills. So they turned to these uh, ways to make money. They needed to make money to live. So it was a very difficult time in the history of the city. What was Kazmarek like? What was his personality like? Well, I think the sort of defining trait was this sort of lack of self-awareness. He saw everything in a way that he was either the hero or the victim, I think. But he was very gregarious. He was not very reliable um, as a narrator. He was, um, I mean, he was a friendly guy and, and a lot of people liked him on the basis of his personality. He was just a very friendly, uh, warm person. And I'm not, I don't mean to imply that Greg didn't have some very endearing traits. I mean, I, one story that I can tell you is that, you know, this, this guy wrote me after the book came out, uh, a somebody who got involved in politics in Schenectady, and he said, you know, he couldn't believe the mess that he got involved in. And it was during this, this either it was during this time, or he knew of this time, or whatever. And he said, but I just want to mention that Greg was my son's Little League coach, and he was the best coach that he ever had. Greg Kazmarak was chief of police in Schenectady from 1996 to 2002. Although his tenure as chief was short, it's a period of time that has cemented itself in the long and somewhat troubled history of Schenectady, New York. Kazmarak was appointed chief by Mayor Albert Jerzynski shortly after he himself took office. Kazmarak being appointed to chief caused quite a stir at the time due to the ongoing rumors that he had used illicit drugs in the past. These rumors, according to Kazmarak, dated back to 1980. In an effort to address the issue, he called news reporters to his office and denied the rumors. And Drzezinski followed through with Kazmarak's appointment. Now that he was appointed chief, Kazmarak was tasked with reducing crime, making sure the department didn't go over budget, and lowering the number of complaints the department received. This was exactly what Greg Kazmarak intended to do. And I think he really did care uh, about people, but he was, one of his fatal flaws was that he was, he was, again, very self-promotional. And what happened in the police department, as I interpret it, was that they were making uh, a lot of arrests. Arrests were going up. The budget was staying, Was he was meeting budget expectations, which was important. He was facing a hostile uh, city council, which was made up uh, predominantly of Democrats. He was a Republican and the mayor was Republican. So he was, you know, he was in his mind doing his job. And that meant turning his eye away from things that were going on in the department that were very dangerous and, and resulted, I think, of the lack of supervision, I think, was in some way responsible for it. Not just a lack of supervision either. If you talk to certain people in the department who are not fans of his, he was actually encouraging it because it was resulting in an increase in arrests and without budget requirements that forced him to ask for more money. So he was getting, they were looking at him and saying, or he was looking at himself and saying, arrests are going up. I mean, I asked him to rate his, to rate his tenure as chief during which there was an FBI investigation. 
four cops went to jail. One committed suicide. He himself was forced to resign and he gave himself a B. And then later he said to me, I've been thinking about it and I would give myself an even a higher grade. And it was for these reasons that I mentioned that. And he said, I would have given myself a higher grade if not for the stuff that happened, but that was largely out of my control. And in fact, it was not out of his control. Uh, he acted as if it was out of his control, but that was because he chose not, not to uh, upset things. So your lift ride was only 20 minutes. Yeah. But you had conversations with him after. So how well, you know, did you get to really know uh, Greg? Well, it's funny that you asked that because he asked me, he knew he was at toward the end of the book, he was very sick and he knew he was, that you know, going to die soon, sooner rather than later. Um, and he asked me to, if I would speak at his funeral. And I had to think about that. For one, for one thing, it was for me, somewhat of a professional ethics question. Like I was not supposed to be his friend. I mean, I was writing a story that he was a central character in, and my background is in journalism. You know, I'm not supposed to be his friend. I'm supposed to be an objective observer. And um, that was one issue. And the other issue is, you know, how well did I know him? You know, I feel like I got to know him pretty well, actually. But I spoke to him maybe, I'm going to say 10, 12 times uh, on the phone. I saw him, I think, once or twice personally in person. I mean, it's a great question because how well do you ever get to know a person? I, I think I think I got a pretty good sense of who he was, but certainly not on a level that I would felt comfortable speaking about him as at his funeral. That was never something that I, I mean, I rejected that idea pretty quickly. But it was interesting that he asked me. It was really interesting that he asked me because he knew, again, that this book was not going to be all flattering. And he said to me at one point, you know, there are some things I wish, and Lisa, his wife, said the same thing. I wish there were some things that you didn't put in here, but it's your book. He kept saying to me, it's your book, it's your book, it's your book. And some of the people he asked, he told me to talk to were people who, uh, you know, didn't love him. And he sent me in their direction. So just, I guess, a, some a contradictory man in some ways, but uh, I think ultimately somebody who didn't really understand the way he was perceived by other people, but an endlessly fascinating man. In 1999, a federal investigation by the FBI rocked the Schenectady Police Department. Four officers, Michael Seiler, Richard Barnett, Nicola Mazzara, and Michael Hamilton Jr., faced several charges ranging from drug distribution, extortion, racketeering, and drug possession. Kazmarek had invited the feds to investigate the Schenectady Police Department. An informant claimed that two officers robbed him of money and drugs. Kazmarek had ordered officers' lockers within the police department to be locked so that they could be searched. Barnett's and Siler's lockers were opened and drugs were found inside. Officers were accused of paying their informants with crack cocaine, basically trading drugs for information, and mishandling evidence. Some officers stashed previously confiscated drugs in their lockers. Police had even broken into homes without warrants. There was an obvious lack of supervision within the department. Mazzara claimed that the chief, Kazmarak, knew what was happening within the department and let it continue. This lax behavior regarding the handling of evidence was against department policy. All four officers received prison sentences. 
The Justice Department finally closed their probe on the Schenectady Police Department in 2013 at the department's request, about 14 years after it was initially opened. Why do you think this level of corruption was able to occur in Schenectady? So I spoke to one guy, who uh, Mark Chairs, who was a, a police chief there. Eventually, he was assistant police chief uh, under Greg, and he um, was actually the first black police chief in Schenectady. And he said something that I thought was really insightful and honest, and he said that a two-part answer to your question, why does it happen at all, and why does it happen under Greg? So first of all, I think you give any... A buddy, a gun and a badge and a, that kind of authority. And that's really the quote that I use in the intro to my book is that you, by somebody who was talking about Abraham Lincoln and in a flattering way and says basically you, you can tell a man's, you tell a man or a human's personal moral code or value or as a human being by how they are when you, when they act with power. And I think that, um, a lot of police, you know, um, even some of those I talk to, they come from situations that when you talk about the thin blue line, it means one thing. It means that you don't cross that as a, as a cop, you don't testify against other cops. But I think it also means that in some cases, you have people who could have gone either way. And, and the fact that they go with the law doesn't wipe out whatever uh, situation they had coming up. So I think that we, we need to be um, better about screening for, for who are, our policemen are. That's number one. And Number two, this guy, Mark Chair, said to me that there comes a time in every policeman's career where you have to make a decision about whether you'd rather do the job as you're supposed to do it or whether you and and be not rich and not be able to meet a lot of your financial needs or whether you want to build that uh, addition to your house was the way he worded it. And, uh, and, you know, some of them are going to make the right choice. And even in light, all of us are forced with you know, we uh, do we stay to work for somebody we don't respect or somebody who's doing things that are harmful in some way because we need the insurance and we need the uh, family needs. We have to put bread on the table. Uh, so all of us have to make that decision at certain times in life. And, uh, you know, you, ho- you hope that it's not easy to know what to do. Uh, and the third thing is that, uh, again, going back to Greg, he, he, he in my opinion, and in the opinion of many people I spoke to, allowed it to happen because for a while there anyway, it was making him look good and, and more secure in his job and um, in his own mind, um, you know, deflecting any pressure that he could. I mean, if the city council said this or that about him, he could just say, well, look at the arrest records and look at the uh, look at how I'm staying within the budget. And I mean, this is what you charge me to do. And this is what I'm doing. I mean, he, he thought that he had this great relationship with the black community, but if you talk to people in the black community, it's like the police were, were like a nightmare. They were targeting people. And, um, the one story about that guy, David Sampson, who they drove out into the woods for no reason at all, without even charging him and took his shoes off and threw them into the trees and just said, have a nice walk back to Schenectady. And Greg just turned the other eye, I think, and for self-interest. David Sampson was 29 when he encountered Officer Richard Barnett and Officer Michael Seiler at approximately 8 p.m. on July 28, 1999, while walking through the Hamilton Hills section of the city. The officers approached Sampson and his associate, and the two allegedly fled on foot to the porch of a nearby home. The residents of the home were asked if they knew Sampson and his associate, 
and they stated that they did not know the gentleman and that they did not have permission to be on their porch. Samson was placed in the back of the patrol car and Barnett and Siler drove him outside of the city limits. Samson repeatedly asked where they were taking him and he received no response. About 11 miles outside of the city, they stopped the car on a gravel road. Officer Barnett removed Samson's boots and tossed them into the nearby trees. He then told Samson to get out and have a nice walk back to Schenectady. The patrol car then sped off into the darkness, leaving Samson alone, not knowing exactly where he was. Samson was eventually helped by some locals who helped him get a taxi back to Schenectady. It turns out that Samson had been driven out to the nearby town of Glenville. Officer Barnett later said things like, well, you know, this is Schenectady where police do things differently. And he said that it was common practice for a lot of the midnight shifts to take intoxicated people out of the city. It was called relocation, and apparently several officers found it amusing. You know, besides encountering and speaking with Kazmarek, what are some of your motivations for writing about Schenectady, a town that you, like you said, you really had no information about prior? I sort of see myself as a storyteller, and I'm always um, drawn to uh, compelling stories and the uh, human aspects of them. And certainly, uh, this seemed to be a very high stakes. Um, I mean, if one member of the police force committed suicide, this seemed to be something with certainly high stakes emotionally. And, you know, that's really my goal as a writer is to move people uh, emotionally and, and intellectually to, to make them think and to make them feel. That's really my goal. So I'm attracted to any story that will do that, which is, so that's number one. And, and you know, it was, seemed to be dramatically compelling enough to do that. And I wanted to get to know, get to know the people involved and who they were and why they made the decisions that they made. So I would say Schenectady was actually a very small part of what attracted me to it. And then, you know, as I got deeper and deeper into it, it just became more fascinating because there were so many different versions, so many different branches to go off to. That's when really Schenectady became really fascinating to me and I wanted to learn more about it. And then there were these whole other aspects, this story about Willie Marhafer, the officer who did commit suicide. Willie Marhafer was a 30-year-old police officer in Schenectady. He had wanted to be a police officer for nearly his whole entire life. He was a seven-year veteran with the Schenectady Police Department, and he was married with a one-year-old son. So here's what happened with Officer Marhafer. Officer Hamilton had provided info that some drug dealers in the Hamilton Hill section of the city were in possession of an illegal firearm. Officer Marhafer and Officer Zelezniak had conducted an illegal search of the residents in question in the Hamilton Hill section of the city. They entered the home without obtaining a warrant. They did find a semi-automatic weapon, but it wasn't out in the open, which would have been required for the charges and arrests. Instead, the weapon was found stashed in a cabinet. However, in the report, 
that was written and signed, the officers stated that the gun was found in plain view. The report led to the convictions of the two residents at the home. The issue is that Marhafer and Zelezniak lied under oath. Now, the FBI had no plans of going after Marhafer, but they had wanted him to testify against other officers within the department. It didn't seem like the district attorney would be going after Marhafer either. He was under serious pressure from the department and the union to not cooperate. Officer Marhafer and Officer Zelezniak were being investigated by the district attorney's office. Marhafer seemed to be aware that what he had done was wrong and was cooperating with the FBI. Cooperating would allow Marhafer to avoid a criminal record. The state had wanted Willie Marhafer to testify against two other officers who hadn't yet been charged, and he didn't want to drag anyone else into the investigation. This is when things kind of took a turn for Marhafer. Marhafer had been on an indefinite administrative leave at the request of the FBI. He wasn't allowed to be on patrol, but he could still visit the station when he wanted to. Marhafer didn't feel safe testifying or being a part of the investigation. He feared for the safety of himself and, of course, his family. Marhafer was also being treated at a nearby hospital for severe depression. Which seemed like it was getting better, but... The issue is law enforcement is twice as likely to commit suicide than civilians. So special care should have been taken with Officer Marhafer in regard to his mental health. Officer Marhafer went into Saratoga Hospital on October 1st of 2001 for severe depression. He was released on October 5th, and on October 6th, he took his own life. He went to the Schenectady Police Department on October 6th to pick up his check. Usually, the check is picked up from the desk sergeant, but Marhafer was told to go see Chief Kazmarak to pick up his check. No one knows what was said between Marhafer and Kazmarak, but afterwards, Officer Marhafer went to go deposit his check. He then came back to the police department, went downstairs into the locker room, and he took his own life. Just one day after being released from the hospital for severe depression. I was contacted amazingly by his brother-in-law, and I thought he was going to start screaming at me, and instead he, Roy Ryan, uh, was so kind and told me something I didn't know. I'm so glad that he reached out, that, and that that the Marhafer family was extremely angry at Greg for a few reasons that then, so that led down another path. And there were just, the deeper I got into it, the more the story, what started as a story about Greg Kazmarek, branched off into all these other different, the story of the city, the story of the city politics, the story of Willie. I got to talk to three of the four policemen who were arrested and they had their own stories to tell. There was a whole story of the history of the police department, which is very, very sordid. And so it just was one rabbit hole after another. 
Schenectady in the beginning was a very small part of it, but eventually became another one of these things that I became fascinated by. So what draws me to any story, I think, is the human element to it and the people behind the drama that just became uh, more and more fascinating and, and richer as, as I dove deeper. When you had the chance to speak to others for the book, what was their impression of Kazmarak uh, and, and his aversion of events? Well, there were some people who uh, had very who were close to Greg and to this day uh, are huge admirers of him. One of the most amazing stories is this guy, Kevin Lewebrand, who was an attorney who brought so many lawsuits against the police department when Greg was there and wound up speaking uh, at his funeral, delivering the eulogy became very much an admirer of Greg's. And so there were people along those lines. What Kevin uh, admired about Greg was, A, his marriage, the fact that he was deeply devoted to his wife. It was actually his third marriage, but that he was deeply devoted to his wife and, and his family, and that he was a good friend, and that somebody who you could turn to for support. What I loved about his speech particularly was that he said, you know, finally that Greg taught us how to go out, which meaning how, how to die with some grace. And I mean, Greg became a very, very religious Catholic. And I think that that helped him a lot toward the end. Um, and so Kevin had a tremendous amount of respect for Greg, which surprised me. He also felt that Greg was upfront with him about things while they were battling. Uh, and Greg had other friends too, who thought he was a good man, who, uh, who basically had the best interest of the department in mind and um, was a good friend. And uh, um, But then there were many people who felt that he uh, was self-aggrandizing and um, uh, very uh, political and also very self-absorbed to the point that he was willing to uh, either encourage or look the other way when things happened that were detrimental to the community. And to their and to individuals on the police force, and that's the whole Willie Marhefer story. Willie Marhefer, the policeman who committed suicide, got in trouble because he was tipped off by Mike Hamilton, who was one of the kind of like one of what Greg called the super cops. He's one of the guys who went to jail, and and Greg Mike Hamilton was a patrol lieutenant, and a lot of these guys under Mike were making a lot of arrests. Uh, you know, Mike got the chief's award, and he was called a super cop, and part of the dynamic duo and just uh, had an amazing record. And it turned out that in the end that a lot of these arrests were illegal, but Willie wanted to be Mike Hamilton. And, and so if Mike was cutting all these corners, then Willie was going to cut them too. Now, Roy said to me, I'm not a fool. I'm not blind. I know that Willie cut corners, but I don't think, and I don't hope that he did it to the extent that Mike Hamilton did. But Willie left one award, one of these Chiefs Award dinners, where it was the highest award in the department, where Mike Hamilton and another, the other super cop, the other member of the NAMIC duo, Nick Mussera, got, got the award that year. And, and as they were walking out, Willie turned to his brother-in-law, Roy, and said, I want, I want that award. I want to win that award. So what happened, Willie got in trouble because Mike Hamilton had tipped him off to a situation in a house uh, I think in Hamilton Hill, some part of Schenectady, where supposedly there was an illegal weapon. And so Willie and his partner went to the house and they couldn't find the gun. They didn't have a search warrant, so they couldn't search the house. So the gun had to be in plain eyesight without a search. And it wasn't, but they searched anyway without a warrant. 
and they found the gun and like hidden in a cabinet and they wrote up the report as if the, the gun was legal and so they arrested the guy for illegal possession of a gun and he wrote up the report he and his partner wrote up the report to say that the gun was in plain sight because they didn't have a warrant and he got caught on that and i don't remember how i think the guy the guy who got arrested complained and somehow they they got the truth, whoever was investigating it, the FBI or the state. And so Willie uh, got in trouble for that. So that was something that the, um, I can't remember if it was the feds or the state, one of them held that over his head and wanted him to testify against other cops, meaning not Mike or Nick, cops they didn't already have in their net. And, and Willie didn't want to do it. And supposedly, Willie went to, um, he got suspended because of what happened with the gun. And he got very depressed. He got treated for depression. And he wanted to be a cop his whole life. That's all he ever wanted to be. Then once he was a cop, he wanted to be the cop. He got out of the hospital, was doing better, and went in to uh, the police station to pick up his paycheck. And the, the desk sergeant, everyone picked up their paycheck from the desk sergeant. That was standard practice. That's what you do. But for some reason, the desk sergeant that Willie didn't understand at the time, the desk sergeant said, you know, you have to pick up your check from the chief. He's got your check. So Willie goes to talk to the chief, Greg. What was said during that conference is known by two people, and that's one is Willie and one is Greg. And the family always was very, always thought that Greg had told Willie something that totally depressed him because it was after that conversation that Willie took his life. He went to the bank and deposited the check and then came back to the police station and went downstairs to the locker room and took his gun out and put it in his mouth and shot himself in the head. And Greg, they thought that Greg said something to him and in what, and, you know, I asked Greg about that and Greg swore that, you know, Greg swore that he didn't remember, uh, this is what I mean about Greg, that he didn't remember talking to Willie that day. He said, the only time I saw Willie that day was when I went to, after I heard the shot and I ran downstairs and, and he said, I ran downstairs and, and Greg used to be a nurse. I used to, I tried to um, resuscitate him. I did everything I could. Resuscitate him. I got, and then I went upstairs and held a press conference. I had, Willie's blood was all over me. Several people said to me, there was no blood on Kazmarek at that press conference, despite what he said. And so Greg insisted that there was. So somebody sent me a video of it. And sure enough, there's no blood on it. Uh, and so you, I go back to Greg and Greg says, well, that's the way I remember it, that there was blood on me. So, but my point being that, uh, Willie, to answer your question, the Marhefer family thought, and I think this is pretty much true, that that Greg encouraged the kind of behavior that Willie was trying to emulate, and it was because it it led to these things, all these arrests, and it made the department look good, and therefore he looked good, even though they were not legal. And he could have investigated them or dug deeper to find out what was going on. Why was Mike Hamilton making all these arrests? And it's not like Greg didn't hear, I mean, Greg could not possibly have not heard of rumors. Number one, there was tremendous, tremendous animosity between the vice, vice squad and the patrol department because the vice squad thought patrol was tipping off their, um, the drug dealers who were, vice wanted to arrest them, but uh, patrol used them as criminal informants. But anyway, Willie had to know there were at least rumors that Hamilton and Macera and and these other guys, Rick Barnett and, and Mike Seiler, were doing things that were illegal, and Greg never investigated. So that's what they thought of Greg, that he encouraged, by lack of intervention, encouraged illegal behavior because it made him look like a good police chief. And he thought he was going to get away with it, and, and he didn't. And the fact that he didn't 
uh, had a huge impact on the lives of, of other people. The same we haven't even talked about, you know, say nothing about what the impact of, like, what about that guy with the gun? He was illegally arrested. So there were all sorts, there were stories of cops throwing drugs into, you know, like planting drugs and, and things like that. So it wasn't just police who were affected by this. It was residents of Schenectady who were being largely uh, people of color who were being affected by all this as well. Yeah, I mean, because drugs were even found in their lockers, right? There were two lockers yeah, in particular so that, yes. that were searched. Yeah, they were confiscating drugs and holding on to them in order to make these, uh, they were giving drugs to confidential informants for information. Some of them were giving drugs to sex workers for sex. Uh, so they were holding on to uh, drugs instead of um, turning them into the evidence room. So obviously, you know, police corruption is an issue all over the country. And that's another reason why this story is timely. I mean, I think, you know, the question is, what, what do we do about it? It's been going on for so long and it's so prevalent. Not, not to say, of course, again, that not most cop moms, most cops are, are, I mean, I don't know, but I'll take their word for it that most cops are upstanding citizens who uphold the law. But, but there is enough of it that we have failed as a country, I think, to adequately address the problem. And I don't see us really doing, I don't know. I mean, even when we did things like video cameras, that would put video I mean, they, they found ways around that, I guess, although I don't know. You know, I don't know. There, It seems like if you look, I was helping a, actually a student, a high school student with a paper on this, and she was telling me that like in countries like in the Nordic countries, like police don't even carry guns. There are countries like that. And I don't know. I don't know why our country is so different. I couldn't even imagine a police force without guns here. But maybe it maybe it is part of the answer. I don't know. But whatever it is, I think we need to do something radical about it. Otherwise, these sort of mini steps, little baby steps don't really seem to be working. It seems like people have different views about Kazmarek. You know, some people really admired him and some people really kind of like hated his guts. So it seems like it's a, it's a mixed bag. That's right. That's what it is. I mean, you would find people who feel like he was a, a, a good friend, a good father, uh, and a good husband and a uh, a good cop, and then you'll find people who you know know him only on a professional level. I didn't speak to anyone who knew Greg strictly on a personal level and didn't like him, uh, but I did speak to many and, and you know many people, some of whom went to jail because uh, you, you know, um, and some of whom lost family members uh, who thought that he was very much just only out for himself, very bad for the department. And I think it's, you know, I think the the predominant, like when I talked to the, um, I heard from uh, somebody who connected me to the current police chief in Skagney, uh, Eric Clifford. And again, I thought that he was going to like chew me out, but it was very nice. And he said to me, you know, I want to make sure that people understand that this is not about, I mean, he said, this is our history. We have to embrace it. We have to um, accept it, but we've spent a lot of time uh, correcting the problems that that we had and, and trying to not be like that anymore. So I think that the, there's no question that, and if you read the newspapers too, there's no question that Greg's time as police chief is looked at as a stain on the history of the, of the Schenectady Police Department. No question at all. It's, it's like, Anytime there's a scandal now, they mention that that you know they go back to the to the other one and say and, and and bring that up. So his tenure there, 
the only person who would give it a B is Greg. I think most people would give it an F. So it's, it has this, and God, they made a movie about it, more or less. I mean, The Place Beyond the Pines, which was that movie with Bradley Cooper and, um, and Ryan Gosling and Ava Mendez, was very, very loosely based on it, but it's, but it really was, um, incited or triggered by, uh, because the screenwriter grew up there and his mother was still there at the time and she was reading all this stuff in the paper. So it really, it's a very unhappy memory for the police of, um, Schenectady. Some things went on before Kazmarek was even chief. So how do you sum up, I guess, the timeline of corruption and, and police events in Schenectady? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, uh, the only difference is that there wasn't this FBI investigation or the state investigation. There, there were some really horrific things going on dating back, as far as my research went, I think to the 50s, I think it was. But um, some cop got arrested for uh, raping a woman in the in the lockup, and um, all sorts of trouble things. The two the two most famous cases of uh, true crime cases of of um, in Schenectady's history. One of them is um, Mary Beth T Timmon. Is that her name? Or I'm forgetting her name, but she had nine children who died. The last one, they finally they, they, in the suspicion is that she was involved in the death of all nine. They only charged her with one, uh, which was the last one, which was a foster child. And one of the police told me that, I mean, she lived in Schenectady. This happened in Schenectady in the 60s, I think. And one, and in one of the 60s or 70s, one of the policemen who was involved in that told me that when they were questioning her behind a one-way mirror, that for this ninth death, that the DA said to them um, sarcastically, congratulations, you stopped her from going into double figures. Uh, he was being sarcastic. So somehow she got away, they believe. And then, you know, she was, again, I want to assert that she was never charged with these murders, but they believe that she got away with eight murders on their watch. I mean, how do you, how does that happen that you keep letting, uh, some of these were uh, adoptions, like foster children. How do you let that happen beyond my comprehension? But that's probably the most famous case, but there were all sorts of Thing. There was one cop who got arrested for um, breaking into cars and parking lots outside a theater and like stealing stuff from the cars and uh, just on and on and on. I mean, it was, uh, it's a very, and I, and I do make that point. It didn't start with Greg by any stretch of the imagination, but this was the point in time between or 99 to 2001 or two that is kind of referred to as the, uh, where it was this endemic going on in the department and where the FBI got involved which I think is a big part of why, I mean, Andrew Cuomo was making statements to the police, to the press about, you know, how important it was to stop this. And, and he was the attorney general at the time. And so it got a lot of attention. You're absolutely right. It was the department had a lot of problems way before Greg got there. So if Greg Kazmarek wasn't the sole perpetrator of Schenectady's history as it is, what do you think is? Is it local politics? I think part of it we talked about was the was the economics. The city lost a huge part of its tax base, and you had uh, all these abandoned homes, and you didn't have the money that you needed to. Um, it was not a sufficiently funded police department. Number one, I think that yeah, I think politics was hugely influential in this, and in that the uh, police chief was a appointed by the mayor, and it was uh, largely a 
I mean, Greg got it because he helped the Republican mayor uh, get elected. But I think that it was, um, you know, that politics played a, a big part in it. The, the, the mayor and the, the city council were fighting over control. Of the, the police department became a pawn in the game between the police department and the, uh, and the mayor. And I think part of it also was, for whatever reason, I mean, if you go back, you'll, you'll hear that Greg was not the first chief who was, who was criticized for uh, being ineffective and lacking the skills to supervise a department of 150 people. And that may be because who, uh, whoever it was who was making the appointment wanted to be able, was more, was more concerned with having control over the department than seeing that things were done legally and, and properly. So, uh, and also let's, I don't think that it's unique to Schenectady in any way whatsoever. So I think it's a, a fact, a combination of, of at least those, those elements. Some officers in the Schenectady Police Department were obviously serving their own self-interests. I mean, do you think some officers, even though they engaged in truly questionable behavior, thought that they were doing good police work, thought that they were doing the right thing? Well, there's no question about that because I spoke to three of them and they they say that um it's you know um it's a it's a great question because who knows what was in there going on in their minds but they're saying that that they never did anything illegal like mike hamilton a big factor in the mike hamilton story was this one event where dea and the local vice squad uh was um was the dea or the state i, I think it was the dea but in any event they had they were had a stakeout uh, at the house of this woman, Darla Weary, who was um, a hugely important confidential informant for Mike Hamilton. And um, they had her house staked out. And Hamilton that day was supposed to be at, an, at the academy teaching, which he was. But then he came, they saw him pull up to Darla Weary's house. And they were like stunned that Mike would do that. Because Mike knew there was a, a stakeout. And, um, his explanation to me was that they they, had, they sent the vice squad sent a CI into the house who was wired and Mike's and then Darla came out and, and anyway they they looked at Mike's phone records he called Darla like three or four times that that during that period he, she got she came out of the house looked around for him didn't see him went back in then came out again they actually saw the two of them Darla and Mike in the car together driving around and um. Mike's explanation to me was that he was only there to pick up a wallet that one of his confidential informants had inadvertently left behind at Dollar's house, one of his other confidential informants. Um, and he was just picking it up. And that's the only reason he was there, that he came from the academy. And nobody else believed that story. <laughs> the jury didn't. Mike and Nick Macera swore to me that they did not do anything illegal, swore to me. And Rick Barnett, was the third policeman I talked to was a little bit more uh he was a little bit more forth a little bit more um willing to say that he had done things that were uh questionable but there's no question in my mind that they they thought that either they think that the question in my mind is do they think that or have they convinced themselves that they think that or are they just lying yeah it's kind of like that phrase you know if you lie to yourself long enough you start to believe it yeah, I think it's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty phenomenal, I'd say. What do you think fuels the blue wall of silence? 
So um, in, in the police, you know, are, have just fostered this, um, um, it's kind of, you know what it's like? I was, I was talking to this guy, I'm working, researching a book on somebody who's doing a jail term on, um, it's funny, he's doing, he's doing a jail sentence on, um, for murder, which he says he didn't commit. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. And, and I read his initial statement to police when he was picked up. And I said, you know, why didn't you, what, this is not a very good interview for him. Uh, and I said, you know, why didn't you say this or why didn't you say that? Or why? And, and he said, you know, he was a member of a gang. He was trying to get out of the gang at the time, but he said, there's a, there's a, I said, were you trying to protect somebody? And he said, I was trying to protect myself. There's like a, a rule among gangs that you, you don't cooperate with police. Apparently, even if your own safety is in jeopardy, you just don't because they'll come, they'll come at you. And which leads us to the fact that I did speak to police who said that one policeman told me that prosecutors were looking for people who would testify in front of the grand jury about things that were happening in the department that his cat was hanged. He found, he found his cat hanged. Rick Barnett, who did go to jail at one point when there were rumors that he, he was going to testify in front of the grand jury, he didn't, uh, but that his, the wheels on his car were, uh, tampered with. And so all kinds of things like that. I think for one thing, people don't, people are afraid to, um, I think the, the union sort of circle the wagons and, uh, and you have to be careful for your safety. Uh, I think there's also a code of ethics, you know, that you don't do that. Um, and the people who did, uh, you know, got, they were, one of them was told me it was followed by one of the cops who were, uh, being indicted, who was looking for, uh, for evidence that they drove, drove drunk or something that they could be used against them. So think about it. Suddenly your life is under a microscope and you have to be really careful. I don't know, what, have I done anything in the past that is going to, so, uh, is fear is a big factor. Yeah. And possibly organized crime and the mob too. Yeah. If you're in bed with the wrong people, then yeah, you could expect fear from them as well. It has been the case. Yes. There have been, uh, a, yeah. I mean, there were, that's another part of the story that was really interesting. It was the, the, the role of uh, gambling and, and organized crime in Schenectady and how some police were, um, were, had been compromised and, and were, this goes back into the 50s, and, and were um, being paid money to, to give them information about pending vice raids and so on. So, David, you know, how has Schenectady changed in the past 15 years or so? Have you been to Schenectady since you wrote the book? How differently do you see it now? I, I don't have much uh, interaction with Schenectady at all. I've been there just twice since. The first time, uh, well, three times actually. The first time was a drive around uh, that I wanted to look at certain sites so that I could have them in my mind. So um, like I looked at the police station and Greg's house and the, uh, there's this bar that was frequently by police uh, near the police station that figured in one of the stories. So I did that. It was just a drive around. Um, I'm, when I met Greg, it was actually, uh, the first time I was in the second time after the lift drive was in Rensselaer, or not Schenectady. And then another time I went there, Lisa had alerted me to the fact that Greg was basically dying. And so I went to visit him in his house. Um, and he was not, it was like barely conscious. So I, I never really got out of his house. I just, and the third time was for his funeral. So, uh, so I've really only been there three times, and, and it's not really a story, but I don't really go into Schenectady post this time, other than to say the FBI eventually closed the investigation. But um, it's really about a period, and this is really about a period in, uh, in time 
uh, and whatever lessons we can take from that to apply to the future, great. But uh, it would have been another story to talk about Schenectady now. Thank you so much for talking to us about the book, your writing, and your experiences with Greg Kasmarak. It's a great book, by the way. You know, we both read it. We love the book. Thank you. Thank you very much. It really is great. Thanks. Um, Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Thanks. We'd like to thank David Bushman for joining us on today's podcast. You've only heard a little bit about what happened in Schenectady. But to get the full true story, go pick up David's book. Forget it, Jake. It's Schenectady, the true story behind the place beyond the pines. You can find it on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Don't forget the movie The Place Beyond the Pines is also based on Schenectady, so that's streaming on Amazon Prime, Hulu. You can even watch it on Stars. You should really see it. It's a good movie. We'll have links to David's book on our website in the show notes, so go check that out. Make sure to like and subscribe. And if you're not following us on social media, we're on Instagram, TikTok, or X. And if you like what you hear, tell your friends, tell everybody. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Bound by the Cloak. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then. Peace.